Here we are at the end of an amazing time in the Old Testament. Have you enjoyed it? I think it's been absolutely brilliant. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah, good. I hope you continue because we're not quite at the end until today. Um, Now, we've been through struggles of suffering, God's blessing of true love, the exile, Ruth's and with God's redemption. And today, we've come to the last message that will be given through his prophets for 400 years until the silence is broken by John the Baptist. So, let's just look at Malachi. Malachi's name means messenger, my messenger. Now, there's not a lot more, actually, about Malachi himself. But the style, as you've probably gathered from the reading today, is very unique because the book of Malachi is like a format of a dialogue between God and his people. Also, most of the prophets who ministered and prophesied in the days, they did it in the days of political or religious or spiritual upheaval. But you see, Malachi is different because Malachi wrote his book in 450 B.C., And that was between the second and the third wave of the captives actually going back to their homeland. So it's done in a very, very different context. It's the period after the fireworks, if you like, the anticlimax of the Israelite nation and history. Nothing of significance was happening. It was, in fact, a time of spiritual bankruptcy and emotional devastation. Well, certainly leaving captivity and return to Jerusalem was exciting. But now, Israel was a third-rate nation. Jerusalem wasn't the same anymore. The infrastructure was destroyed. There was a lot of work to be done to make it habitable. Its glory days had long gone. In fact, it says in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, there was economic privation, crop failure, and prolonged drought. And of course, that led, what, to apathy, backsliding, and people questioning God. Has God forgotten us? Where are all the promises that have been spoken to us in the past? God doesn't seem to have honoured them. Where is he? The return of God's glory in the temple hadn't come to pass. Let me explain. You see, when the temples were built in the time of Moses and Solomon... The temples, when, as soon as they were completed, were filled with God's glory, God's Shekinah. Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 43 of his book that God's Shekinah glory would one day return to his temple. The new temple's completed, and there was nothing occurring to indicate that God's Shekinah had come. So as a consequence, the service the Lord to the Lord becomes drudgery, and their support of his work becomes almost a non-existent. They didn't expect God as they once did, and they were beginning to treat their spiritual obligations casually. Instead of giving God their best, they approached worship in a half-hearted manner. Yes, in the temple, the Levitical priests were doing the sacrifices as they ought to do, The routine of religious practices were continuing. But you see, the people weren't stupid. They knew that when they came there, there was no power, there was no enthusiasm in the worship to God, and there was no real meaning in their religion. They were asking, where is God, the God of our fathers? Where is his glory we've been told about in the past? There were generations who were dying but continuing the Jewish religion without meaning. 
They were losing their faith and arguing, well, does it really matter whether we serve God or not? Where is God now anyway? Where is he in our defense? What's the point of serving a God? Does he really really pay off to worship and to follow him? Doesn't that sound familiar? Are we not in that same situation today, many of us feeling like that? We're in a period of awaiting in our history, aren't we? Certainly in the West, most of us aren't experiencing the apostolic signs and we're not knowing the reviving of the Spirit of God. Where is the passion for God, the commitment to follow God, the God who never changes and whose standards never change? Maybe you're saying with countless others, we don't need miracles in the West today. We can turn on a tap anyway. That's a miracle. Do you think it's a miracle? It is really, you know, it's amazing. We don't need a God. We can do so many things for ourselves. We have all we need. I go to church each week and that gives that couple of hours and that's my duty done. And I think so many Christians have given up to a large extent by default without admitting it to the spirit of the age. Though they take the name of Christ, they're living in the same way as the world lives because they feel that their faith perhaps has been unanswerably challenged by science. The reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, that just like in Malachi's day, many are losing touch with a living God. They they don't have this vital, vibrant, living, burning, electric relationship with God. Where is our passion? Israel certainly lost touch with God. Then Malachi... God's messenger burst on the scene with a burdened heart. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word of the Lord, not the word of Malachi. The word of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord was by him. Malachi's message, modern to them and modern to us today, was simply this, that whatever changes in the world, whatever changes among my people, whether they be Israel or whether they be the New Testament church, whatever changes in your transitory life, God never changes. You may be living in a period of time where you're waiting. You may be living in a day of small things when little thing is happening spiritually in your life or in the church or in your nation. But yet God's word through Malachi says, and let's chapter 3, verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, I change not. What Malachi is really saying to the people, if God doesn't change, God's word doesn't change. And what God requires of every man, woman, and child does not change either. The content of this book bears it out. But you see, it wasn't enough for the people. The second thing that we see is the people's protest against God's love. They say, how have you loved us? You love us, prove it. Where's the evidence? That's in the verses that we we read in in chapter 1. We don't have evidence in our day and age. How are you loving us, God? They began to doubt God's love. And you know, we can be guilty of the same sin. They had, and we have, very short memories. You see, these people had known the protection of God from their enemies... They had known personal blessings. He had restored the land to them. 
He had allowed them to re-establish the temple, to reinstitute the temple worship and the priests. He'd even brought revival not so long ago through Ezra and Nehemiah, as we heard in the last few weeks. And he'd even given them rest from their enemies. Now, that was a change for the Israelites, wasn't it? But they showed complete indifference and apathy, ingratitude to all of it. Are we any different? Ingratitude for past blessings blinds us to the present ones. We take God for granted, don't we? We do it all the time in daily life. The one that is closest to you is the one that you hurt most because you take them for granted the most. I don't know about you, but I find that Malachi's teaching strikes at the heart of today's nominal, easygoing Christianity. Just as it did in the um, Judean time of Malachi's day. Now, I don't know where you are today. But maybe Satan comes to you and tells you that God has neglected you, that he's forgotten you in that illness, in that problem, in your turmoil, that God has failed you, that he's let you down. Maybe he's whispering in your ear, look at your life, it's a disaster. Where is your God now? Where are his promises? Well, be very careful, because doubting God's love is the beginning of unbelief and the beginning of disobedience, as we've read particularly today. And at the very beginning of the Bible, when Eve believed Satan rather than God, and effectively Eve doubted that God loved her. She thought that God was disenfranchising her from something that was good, something that would add to her life. And when we start thinking like that about God, we doubt his love. The Israelites took that into their hearts, that the indifference manifested through the lives of the priests at that day, because we read that they had polluted the sacrifices to the Lord. They polluted the temple sanctuary and their service to God, and their entire worship to God was therefore rejected, because it was corrupt, it was not the best. We need to grasp God's greatness and honour his holiness, or we will not only face rebuke, we will face rejection. The priests were indifferent when they were challenged. They deluded themselves into thinking, well, something's better than nothing. Well, lukewarm's better than cold. Let me warn you that you're going to hear one of the strongest statements you'll ever hear in the Bible, I think, and you probably, it was read today, but you probably skipped over it and never gave it another thought. So if you've got your Bibles open, I'd like you to ch- uh, look at ver- ver- um, chapter 2 and verse 3. <clears throat> and it's on page 961. I think I've got the right bit there. No, I'm sorry. It's um, chapter, yeah, chapter 2. Um, Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival feasts, and you will be carried off with it. Right. Well, that, you can just pass over that in a little way, can't you? But you see, when the priests sacrificed animals, 
And I know that you're tough here in BBC, so you can have a bit of vision, you know, and think what it was like. When they put the animals on the table to slaughter them, and then the intestines and the organs are separate, so they had to be cleared out and thrown out, a bit like you clean a chicken up, okay, but massively bigger. And this was a messy job. So the priests today, don't they have an easy one of it? They don't have to do all this, do they? If you're squirming now, then, uh, you know, just if we move on, you see the word offal refers not only to the intestines, but also to the dung or the feces that was also in the animal. Okay? Getting the picture. Now, this was awful, awful. And what God is saying is, because his priests have not honoured his holiness, he's going to give them a manure makeover. He's going to take that excrement and smear it on them. And your mud packs have got nothing on this, have they? You know? Now, imagine that. His priests, he's he's saying he's going to do that to them. These self-righteous religious leaders have their faces covered in feces, and it's horrible to think about. But you see, the rebuke led to rejection. That's the rejection part of God, but it also is going to lead to removal because normally when all this offal's clean out, they threw it through a window and it was burned because it was unclean, filthy as you can imagine. But you see, since their faces were going to be covered in this dung, they also, it means, they should be thrown out. You see, God is not passive about how we treat his name. He will not allow anyone to prosper for long in any form of rebellion like that that is known to his will. And why? It goes back to Malachi Chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, said the Lord. He loves us too much to keep us keep living like we are. We must come back to a proper understanding of his holy love. God will not stand for wimpy worship or sloppy service. And verses 8, it says, they departed from the way. Now, let's be honest about something. Many of us are playing little church games. We compromise. We disobey whenever we feel like it. And right in the face of a holy, almighty God. If we would revere God as awesome, we'd be changed forever. No question about it. You see, many of us are bored with God because we don't understand who he really is. And because we don't always honor his holiness, we lose sight of what's really important. And notice the second part of, of chapter 2, verse 7. It says, people should seek instruction and want to hear from us. Now, that leads to the question, are you making people thirsty for God? Do people come to you for answers? If we're living our faith out loud, people will notice. They will come and seek instruction from us. If no one's asked you why your life is different, then maybe it isn't. Now they ask the question, and mark this in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7. How have we defiled the offerings? Now, that's a practical question. What have we done physically done in, in an action or a deed to defile the offerings? Now, the answer that God gives back is that it's not just the fact that we have defiled the offerings. The problem is the attitude in which it's being given. In that you have said, in verse 7, the table of the Lord is contemptible. They ask the question, and the authorised version actually says correctly, wherein have we polluted thee? Now, I don't believe you can pollute God. I don't believe that our unholiness makes um, God unholy in any way. But what God is saying is, my name, my reputation, my character is at stake here, and you are to be a reflection of it. If you are polluting me, then... 
that's the way you do it, by this attitude that they had. It was their attitude and a warning today that it's not long until eventually, you know, hidden attitudes, don't they become open actions? They don't remain in us. If we're bitter or moaning or grumbling or always seeing the wrong in everybody, it won't stay inside you. It'll come out and you'll be doing it with other people or to other people, you know, whatever. So what's in our lives that may be growing and seeping through the cracks today? In verse 10, it says, I would rather see the temple closed than my name being despised. And you Israelites, in in paraphrasing it, you Israelites playing religion, honoring me with your mouth when your hearts are far from me. This sloven, irrelevant irreverent, hypocritical worship must cease. Now imagine this. God's declaring it would be better the doors of the temple were closed than they offer unfit sacrifices. I wonder today how many churches should be closed on that basis. Look at verse 13. You said also, behold, what weariness is it? You sniff at me. Now, You think, well, I'd never do that. But there's ways of doing that, isn't there? They began to do God's work carelessly. That sniffing at God, it was wearisome to them. And oh, how things don't change. Many Christians become familiar, don't they, with the Lord's table. They become familiar with worship service. They become familiar with the leaders in the church. They become familiar with perhaps the very blood of Christ and their spiritual principles and dogmas and doctrines of Holy Spirit, of Holy Scripture. And you can always get to the stage in your familiarity that it breeds contempt. How many today, Christians today are getting bored with their blessings? How many are wearied in their work? The reason for it all is simply this. The same lesson we need to learn from these priests is that their heart is not in it. They become weary and fed up with it all. Now, you might say, as those in Malachi's day said, well, what does it matter? All of this is well and good, but what does it matter? If serving God is a waste of time, if the wicked succeed, what does it matter if I fear God or spend time with him, or if I speak often about him? Well, you know, it is important because the Lord hears it. It says in chapter 3, verse 16, that he has a book of remembrance. Now, the second half could be translated, the Lord pricked up his ears and he listened for those who were talking about him. He was listening for anyone that would name his name worthily. Suppose you talked for a day, and I know it'd be really hard for some of you to talk for a day, wouldn't it? And never not stop. Um, And everything you said was taken down verbatim. How much, I wonder, would be entered into God's book? conversations after or before church, around the dinner table, on your evening socials. How much would you be happy recorded in that book? Should we not fear God? Should we not think often about him? Should we not speak of him one to another? Now here is perhaps the most frightening statement in the message. The days of the Levitical priesthood have passed, but we as Christians are the priesthood. So you have that same responsibility that the priests had that we've been talking about today. Does it frighten you? It's a tremendous privilege, but never lose the thrill of that blessing. But also don't forget the responsibility that goes with it. Peter said, 
we are also to bring spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How acceptable are our sacrifices? So why do, in in Malachi 3.2, it says, For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And Psalm 66 also says, Oh God, tested us, you refiners like silver. And I thought it was quite important, actually, because here we are, we've got a terrible message here, you know, a a real wake-up call, I would think. But how does he refine us? How does he get us to be in a better place? And what's involved in that? So I just thought I'd look at the fact of how silver um, is refined because that's what it's talking about. Now, it doesn't come out of the ground shiny and clean. I'm sure you all know that. Silver ore has as little as 1% silver in, in, in the ore that they bring out. It has metals and minerals and just literally plain dirt, actually. In order to remove the impurities, the ore is crushed and sifted and heated under fire. You and I resist being crushed and sifted And we want to run away from the fire, quite naturally. You remember in your childish wisdom, you'd say to God, in in terrible circumstances, oh God, it hurts, the fire burns, take it away. God can't do anything in our lives until we are broken. Broken and humble. That enables God then to remove the impurity of sin from us. And I'm sure you know silver also is used to make mirrors. Well, mirrors have one purpose, it's to provide an accurate reflection. But have you noticed, I've got mirrors that make me look a little bit nicer and some that make me look a bit naff, actually. So, you know, some of them aren't perfect, but a really, really good mirror will give an accurate reflection. We want to be able to see ourselves as we really are, don't we? God refines us like silver so the world can see the image of Jesus in us. As we accept God's purpose in our life, we will reflect him to the world. Now, there's more in refining. In Malachi 3, verse 3, it says, He will sit as a refiner and and purifier of silver. Now, when we look at God in verse 3, it says, He is sitting. Now, God doesn't appear to be doing anything. Sure, he'll purify us when he gets round to it. Transformation is a process. It takes time. So God sits and waits for the refining to happen in our lives. You see, what happens, the silversmith will leave the silver over a fire and just watch it. He doesn't stir it. He doesn't move it away from the fire. He watches it, and then there's one moment when he can see his image reflected in it, and that's when he removes it from the flame. God won't leave work undone in your life. He will complete his purpose, but it takes time, and often we have to go through many things. God sits and watches us over the flame. Now that image, I found quite difficult, I would think many of you might, just think he sits and watches us over a flame. But you see, I felt for this last year, I've been sitting over a flame, and it would be nice to have it taken away. but I've learned a lot through it. And God doesn't cause those problems in our lives because that's somebody's argument, oh, well, if God gives you, you know, just causes that so you'll get better. He doesn't, but what he does say, I will sit, but I will watch, even if you're over the flame, but I am there. And through that, you will be refined 
you will learn so much. How many people in this world do so much for others because they've been through that themselves? If we never, ever suffered, we'd have no compassion for anybody else because we wouldn't know what it was like. But it's a hard lesson, isn't it, that he sits and watches. And my daughter's always saying, I hope it's going to end tomorrow because he said he'll not allow you to be tempted or allow you to be trialed more than you can bear. And don't, but sometime looking back, don't we go through a lot more than we thought we could bear? But it's coming out better rather than bitter. And that's God's purpose. When it seems that God isn't working or he's forgotten about us, that is the time you have to trust in his unfailing love. Malachi began this message with a reminder of the eternal love of God, a love that a sovereign, strong, steadfast, seeking God wants to give us. We need to learn to continually hope in God with an unwavering faith, trusting wholeheartedly in a God that we can give him then a sacrifice of praise. We praise God not for our circumstances, but we praise him for who he is. We mustn't let our response to God become emotionally based on how things are going in our life. He's achieved the purpose when we reflect his image. The beauty of Jesus is seen in all we do and say. Occasionally reflecting the image of Jesus is not enough. God wants to purify our lives so that we reflect him in everything. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Little by little, we reflect Jesus more and more as we're refined more and more. With an increasing glory, we are transformed into his likeness. Then we will see him face to face and be able to say, he has always been holy. He has always been just. He has always been wise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. He is unchanged mercy. He is unchanged love. He is unchanged justice and unchanged truth and goodness, unchanged generosity. God does not change. And that is why he says in Malachi 3 verse 6, I am God. Yes, I am. I have not changed. But have you allowed him to change you into his likeness? Where are you today with a God who never changes? Let's just reflect for a moment on these things.